It is Wednesday, July 8th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola. And if you've been following our series on this podcast, you heard us talk about the Dolphins and the rest of the AFC East two weeks ago. Today, you can read our full profile on Devontae Parker to see if you actually want to draft the wideout this season. That is live on DraftSharks.com. We also posted Teddy Bridgewater's profile on Monday. You can find a bunch of other players freely available on DraftSharks.com. Of course, that's just a sampling of the hundreds of profiles that you can find on the site if you're a DS Insider. So join up today, get access to all of those, our exclusive MVP board, which I know is helping me through the Scott Fishbowl draft and its funky scoring system right now, plus the rest of our award-winning content and tools Today, though, Jared, we're going to roll on with the division-by-division preview series, and we're going to the AFC North. It, of course, starts with the Baltimore Ravens, last year's breakthrough team. Why don't you tell us if there were any relevant coaching changes first? Yeah, no coaching changes here, which isn't surprising. Like you said, the Ravens go 14-2. and They probably don't want to change anything if they can help it. So it's John Harbaugh back at... Uh, head coach and Greg Roman calling the shots on offense. And, and last year's Ravens, as I think we know, were the most productive rushing offense in NFL history, actually. 3,296 rushing yards, broke the previous NFL record by 131. Baltimore obviously led the league with 596 rushing attempts, led the league with a 56% run rate. And really, none of that was two out of character for Greg Roman offenses. He had uh, coached six offenses previously, four in San Francisco, two in Buffalo. All nine of those teams finished top nine in rushing attempts, top eight in rushing yards. All six of them ran it at least 49% of the time. Four of the six ran it over 52% of the time. Roman also, before last year, had coached mobile quarterbacks, Colin Kaepernick for two and a half seasons in in San Francisco, Tyrod Taylor for two years in Buffalo. It was really a perfect marriage between play caller and quarterback when you have, you know, Lamar Jackson, who looks like he's going to be the best best rushing quarterback ever. So that that obviously worked well. I don't think you're going to see too much change in Baltimore this season. I did project them to come down a bit in run rate to 53 and a half percent. You know, maybe they want to see Lamar throw it a bit more in a second year. I think more than anything, though, you know, again, Baltimore went 14 and two last year. I think you have to project them to lose a few more games this season, be trailing a bit more, which will force them to pass it a bit more. You know, we saw in that playoff loss to Tennessee when they fell behind and they had to throw it. I think you're going to see that at least a little more in 2020. For just that reason, I projected them at a 52-48 pass run split. That that might even be, as you mentioned, from Mark Roman's history, or Greg Roman, I'm sorry. Uh, Mark Roman was a safety, I believe. Anyway, (laughs) I think that might even be a little high based on the history here. But I think you kind of have to start it there as the expectation because it, it doesn't usually get a whole lot run heavier than that. This team, of course, as you mentioned, is, is certainly built to continue operating that way. And we've seen the OC want to do that. I mean, let's go ahead and roll into the QB notes with their first running back, who's Lamar Jackson, who also happens to be their quarterback. It was not at all surprising to see him set records for rushing attempts and rushing yards by a quarterback in his first full season as the starter. I mean, he broke his own record for rushing attempts by a quarterback, and Lamar Jackson set that as a rookie despite starting only seven games. The obvious big thing 
that's probably changing statistically for him in year two as a full-time starter. And it's the thing that everybody's going to point to the 9% passing touchdown rate in 2019. It's the fourth highest in the league since the 1970 AFL NFL merger. That said, even if you give Lamar Jackson last year's league median for a touchdown rate among the 32 qualifying passers, that would have been four and a half percent. That would have cut his passing touchdowns in half from 36 down to 18. If you score that at four points per touchdown pass, he still would have ranked third among all fantasy quarterbacks, even with just 18 touchdown passes. Yeah, exactly. An interesting note, too, from uh, Roto World's Hayden Winks. He, he, he found that 23% of Lamar Jackson's passes last season came from inside the opponent's 25-yard line. That was the second highest rate in the NFL. When you're throwing more passes close to the end zone, you're going to have a higher touchdown rate, as, as Hayden noted in that article. So Lamar Jackson's passing touchdown rate is going to come down. I think it's going to stay above league average, though. Yeah, I would say that he's headed for that as well. Any other notes on Jackson? It'll be interesting to see what happens with the rushing. Obviously, as you said, he set NFL records in carries and rushing yards. Lamar made some comment in April saying, you know, he he doubt he he doubts he's going to be carrying the ball a lot going forward. I, I don't buy into that. Maybe it cuts back a bit, but you know, that's still where he's at his best. Again, Greg Roman has the long history with those mobile quarterbacks. So, sort of like with the passing touchdowns, I think Lamar's rushing probably comes down a bit but it's, it's going to stay you know, as high as we've ever seen from quarterback. Right. Those are the kinds of comments that can be dangerous to kind of overanalyze at this time of year because he might say, I don't know, I'm going to run the ball a whole lot. Yeah, it's probably coming down from an NFL record for attempts last year, but he's not going to turn into Joe Flacco. There's going to be no. lots of rushing here, and that's going to continue to drive. I think my – I don't want to say concern – but I guess it's concern. My one concern with Lamar Jackson is we're probably not going to see another season that looks just like last year for him. But I don't have any idea what not quite like last year really looks like. Does his passing touchdown rate come down a lot? Do they really cut into the rushing a lot? I, I doubt that. I think he's still going to be a top fantasy scorer. So even if I'm not drafting him at his cost this year, it's tough for me to say he's a bad pick when, you know, he's going late round two, middle of round three. Yeah. And I mean, if we're talking about the top two quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, I, I prefer Mahomes just because I think what he does, it, it feels more sustainable. And that's just maybe because he's more of a traditional quarterback than what Lamar is. I think there's, there's more ways for Lamar to quote unquote disappoint this season. That's the only reason I prefer Mahomes. But again, they're obviously one, two. And I, I do think if these guys get into the third, fourth round of drafts, they, they start to make sense there. And the big difference between these two guys and some of the previous like high scores that we've seen before is just, you know, not that long ago, if somebody scored a quarterback the way that Lamar Jackson did last year, he would be getting drafted in round one regularly. Like that would be his ADP. So if we're talking about taking Lamar Jackson in round three, you know, we don't have to throw out the never take a quarterback that early round three is a, a fine time to do it. If you want to. Yes, totally agree. Running back notes, Mark Ingram had a nice mix of strong performance and good luck last year. It was his age 30 season. It featured his second most yards per carry and second most yards per catch of his career. He finished seventh among running backs in rushing touchdowns, despite ranking just 20th in carries, tied for the second most touchdown receptions at the position with five. That doubled his career total. Ingram ranked just 41st among running backs in reception, so clearly got a bit lucky on the touchdown front. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think he got luckier on the receiving touchdowns, obviously, the five scores on 26 catches. He did tie for third in the NFL with 15 carries inside the five-yard line, so I I don't think the 10 
rushing scores are, are too out of whack. The, the bigger concern for Ingram, obviously looking ahead to 2020, is the fact that one, he turns 31 this coming December. You know, so he's going to play most of the season at 30. That that's that's the age you start to worry about running backs. And then of course the Ravens add J.K. Dobbins in the second round of this year's draft. And, you know, he could quickly prove to be the best running back in that backfield. Yeah, and of course after they took J.K. Dobbins in round two, John Harbaugh called him quote, probably our top rated running back. Dobbins was a fifth running back off the board in the draft. He averaged 6.2 yards per carry, 9.1 per catch across 725 rushes and 71 receptions at Ohio State. I agree. Dobbins is the big concern for me on Ingram. And it's really just because Ingram's price is depressed from where you would expect somebody who scored the way he did last year is just RB 27 in ADP. So I, I can't say Ingram's a bad pick. I'm worried about his production. And I if I'm betting between the two guys, I'm betting on J.K. Dobbins outscoring Mark Ingram by the end of the season. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I just think Dobbins are a perfect fit in Baltimore. You know, he's a, a downhill power runner. He was top 12 among draft eligible running backs in both yards after contact and missed tackles forced last season. Uh, that according to Pro Football Focus. Also love Dobbins fit in Baltimore because 57% of his carries last year at Ohio State came on run option plays and you know Baltimore easily led the league last year in RPO so it should be a comfy fit for J.K. Dobbins I agree I'm, I'm betting on him outscoring Mark Ingram this year I also think at the price those guys are going you can definitely take Ingram and J.K. Dobbins because we know this Ravens rushing attack will likely be the best in the NFL again this season so I think you know both guys could return decent value at those price tags and if one disappoints that probably means it's because the other one is going to you know smash their price tag right now. I agree, and I think that holds for both best ball drafting and lineup setting drafting. The Ravens running backs ranked seventh in the league in carries last year, despite Lamar Jackson running the ball so much. The one knock is target share. We, I don't think that we're going to see a huge jump in Lamar Jackson targeting his running backs. And obviously running the ball a lot just leaves fewer targets available. Beyond that, Ravens running backs were third worst in the league in target share for the position last season. I think that there's a ceiling there because of the running quarterback. I mean, when you can run for a first down and not take the risk of throwing the ball, that's going to be attractive to a quarterback like Lamar Jackson. So, you know, it lowers the ceiling a bit, but I agree it's still a great situation and they're both going late enough that you can take both running backs if you want. Yeah, I agree on the, the target ceiling for these guys being low. But we also saw Ingram be super efficient when he did get targeted last year. And I think, you know, that just had to do with the fact that, that offense was so good. So, you know, you, you could see Ingram and Dobbins both, you know, be more efficient than than most on their limited targets. And even if you don't want to take both of those guys, I think that they're both at a range where you can take one or the other and feel fine about it. For sure. Justice Hill, Gus Edwards, for me, non-factors in fantasy at this point. I mean, Hill... Had some upside heading in the last season, but he didn't reach double-digit carries in a game until Week 17. That, of course, was the game that Mark Ingram missed and a meaningless game for the Ravens because they had already clinched. He had 15 total targets for the season, six of those in the final two games. Again, that was the game that Ingram missed in the game before that he left early. So Justice Hill barely got the ball last year, and now they have J.K. Dobbins. We saw Ingram in, and to a lesser extent, Gus Edwards. You know, Gus Edwards averaged 7.5 carries per game in Ingram's 15 healthy games. I mean, even that wasn't you know, quite enough to really make him a fantasy option. So despite this running game being so good, you know, Lamar Jackson takes up such a big slice of that pie that there's there's not room for three running backs here. Pass catcher notes, normally we start with a running back, but I think you got to start with Mark Andrews here. Fifth among tight ends in PPR points last year, fifth in targets, seventh in catches, fifth in yards, 
first at the position in touchdowns. I was obviously way wrong on him heading into last season. I'm going to be in the opposite direction this year. I was off on him too. I know, you know, Kevin was high on him. Um, where I missed on Andrews is just, I think, how, how good this Ravens offense was, and even to a lesser extent, just how good the passing game was. I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect Lamar Jackson to take as big of a leap as he did last year, and that obviously fueled Andrews' breakout season. If, if you're going to knock Andrews heading into 2020, you, you could say that his touchdown rate is probably coming down. He scored on 15.6% of his catches last season. You know, that, that's probably coming down. At the same time, his targets could climb. You know, he saw 98 targets last year, 22.3% target share, which is a big number, but you know, that, that could climb a few percentage points, especially with Hayden Hurst gone to Atlanta. Um, you know, he was the number two tight end here last year and leaves behind 39 targets. So you could definitely see Andrews picking up at least a few of those. Yeah, and as you mentioned with Lamar Jackson and Mark Ingram, the high touchdown rate was not as fluky as it might seem. Uh, Mark Andrews ranked third at the position in red zone targets. According to Pro Football Focus, he tied for the lead among tight ends in end zone targets. So the scores came because he was getting opportunities down where you score. Mm -hmm. If you bring last year's 15.6% touchdown rate down to 10%, which is not out of whack for the top of the position, Mark Andrews still would have ranked seventh in PPR points per game among tight ends last year. You mentioned Hayden Hurst is gone. uh, And the team also ranked last in the league in pass attempts last year. So even if they are running at a similar rate, we're probably going to see a few more attempts this year. We could see more playing time for Mark Andrews. So if the TD rate does come down, which it's likely to from that lofty number, there are other factors that can raise up the rest of the scoring. Let's talk uh, Marquise Brown now. I think his... 2019 rookie season was sort of defined by the injuries. He the, the big one was the left foot surgery he had prior to his rookie season. It actually came in, in January of 2019 to repair a, a list Frank injury in his foot. And that, that seemed to be an issue all season. John Harbaugh actually said earlier this offseason that he, he didn't think Brown was ever at full strength last year. He also appeared on the injury report with hip, ankle, and thigh injuries during the season. We saw... Brown's upside on occasion last year. He went for 147 yards and two touchdowns in week one, caught eight balls for 86 yards the next week. And then in that playoff loss to Tennessee, seven catches for 126 yards. So he flashed it on occasion, even if he never was 100%. As of now, it looks like we're going to get a fully healthy Marquise Brown this season. He had the screw removed from that foot in February. He's had a healthy offseason. There's been plenty of puff piece articles this season about Hollywood Brown looking healthier, uh, you know, putting on some weight in the off season. So a lot of reasons to believe that, you know, he, he could break out last year. Remember this guy was the 25th overall pick of last year's draft. So obviously he was a high end prospect and the guy, the Ravens were high on. Yeah. I headed into last season at this time last year, I was totally off Marquise Brown because of that foot fracture, the January surgery that you mentioned, it had me skeptical for rookie year production. And then he exploded in week one and I was like, <laughs> Oh crap. Maybe I made a mistake on this guy. But as you mentioned, the big numbers in the first two weeks and then kind of disappeared for a while because of injury. Those first two games where he totaled 233 receiving yards, they would end up accounting for 40% of his receiving yardage for the entire season. He did have that midseason ankle sprain. As you mentioned, the Ravens have conceded that he was rarely at full strength. And Brown still led last year's wideout on the Ravens by 25 targets. So I believe in the breakthrough hype for this season. And now that we're removed from that foot surgery and there's a chance that we just get this fully healthy Marquise Brown with a quarterback who has now broken out, 
I think there's huge upside to him. Yeah, again, I mean, he, he was an awesome prospect coming into the league. Went over 1,000 yards as a sophomore, as, as a true sophomore in 2017. Over 1,300 yards as a junior in 2018. Again, he was a first-round pick. Another note on Marquise Brown, John, John Harbaugh talked in June about wanting to throw deep more this year. That would obviously, you know, fit with Marquise Brown's game. Lamar Jackson was outside the top 20 last year in, in deep ball rate, you know, the percentage of passes that went 20-plus yards downfield. But he had the league's sixth-highest passer rating on those throws, 20-plus yards downfield. So he, he was already good when he went deep. And, you know, again, Harbaugh said they want to go deep more this season. Yeah, and it certainly makes sense when you're looking at the personnel that they have. And, and I think that Marquise Brown, you know, away from the stats, when we were watching him as a prospect, I thought he played bigger than <laughs> – the size that he measured at, at the combine. So I don't think he's just a, a tiny guy who's fast. Yeah, I agree with that. And that, that was the, his size was the biggest concern coming in to me, at least. I think he was like 160 something at the combine. Again, it sounds like he probably put on some weight this off season, which should help. And, you know, it's, he's, he's still in a range where he, he's going to be an outlier at his weight. If he, you know, becomes a high end fantasy producer. Yeah. And I mean, if that makes him less durable year to year, like Deshaun Jackson, who misses mm-hmm. a couple of games every season, that's okay. I'll take 13 games of Marquise Brown over 16 games of other guys that I can draft in that same range. Definitely. Not a whole lot else to like, I don't think, for 2020 among Ravens yeah. receivers. Miles Boykin's out there. I'm not chasing him at all, but I think there is a bit of upside if we get significantly more passing here. Ravens GM Eric DaCosta said at, back at the scouting combine that he was very, very excited about Boykin, said we think he'll make a big jump. Besides Boykin, there's just Willie Sneed returning on a one-year deal, and then Devin DuVernay and James Prochet from the draft. So I think there's room for Boykin to emerge at something. I'm not excited about what something could be this year. Yeah, Boykin's a guy I've taken in like the you know 26th, 27th round of these FFPC basketball drafts just because he's, you know, in this top-notch offense. There is a clear path for him to be, you know, at least the number two wide receiver here. He was a third-round pick. You know, he's he's big and he's athletic. Um, so I think that at least gives him upside. But I'm not, like, banking on him breaking out this season. You know, there are these other guys here, like you mentioned, Willie Sneed, the two rookies they drafted this year, including Duvernay, who was also a third-round pick, just like Blinken was. And the other thing here is that only 41.5% of Baltimore targets went to wide receivers last year. That's, you know, well below the league average of 58%. That mark should climb a bit you know especially with Hayden Hurst gone that leaves Nick Boyle as the number two tight end behind Mark Andrews but I I think it's still going to be an offense where you know less than average number of targets go to the wide receivers I agree and I want to round out this section by getting back to Nick Boyle because I think he's worth keeping in mind Mm -hmm. late in an FFPC draft probably not quite as a third tight end in best ball tens but certainly in FFPC drafts the Ravens tight ends ranked second in the league in receptions last year despite the team being last in total path attempt And the position was first in target share at 40.9%. That's the largest share for any tight end group over at least the past six years. I agree that we'll probably see some of that shift to a developing wide receiver core this year. But I also think that we'll still see plenty of tight end targets. And with Hayden Hurst gone, you know, we mentioned what he left behind, 39 targets. Nick Boyle actually drew four more targets than Hayden Hurst last year. Each of those guys scored two touchdowns. So, you know, there's there's a chance for Nick Boyle to give you a usable week here and there. And then if you stack him with Mark Andrews on an FFPC draft, then you also get some handcuff insurance behind Andrews in case he gets hurt. Yeah, I have no issue taking Boyle late in these FFPC basketball drafts. I, I do think he's probably going to give you, you know, two, three, four, top 12 tight end weeks this season. And if, if Andrews did go down, and Andrews did deal with a bunch of different injuries last season. Um, and, you know, so if he, if he misses time in, in 2020, we're probably talking about Boyle as a top 12 tight end option. 
Who I like, it's Mark Andrews. Like I said, I was obviously way off on him last year. If I'm off on him this year, it's going to be that I'm drafting him too early. I, I think that he has a higher ceiling than Zach Ertz, barring a Dallas Goddard injury. Yeah, higher ceiling, I'll give you. I still think Ertz is safer. But, you know, th- those guys are neck and neck. I have no issue. I've been taking both of them. Andrew's going in the late fourth round in standard leagues. I think that's a good spot. And in, in these FFPC leagues, you know, the tight end premium scoring, I, I like Andrews anywhere in round three, and you can usually get him there. Otherwise, Marquise Brown is a player that I want to chase if his ADP moves because I don't want to be, I don't want to completely miss out on him this year because I don't even know what the ultimate ceiling is. Maybe he has top 12 upside just because of the placement and the, you know, the real boom potential on a per play basis. So at wide receiver 28, I'm certainly taking some shares and, and I'm willing to adjust if he moves up some. Yeah, especially in best ball season here, it's the, I think the best time to target Marquise Brown. His his ADP has climbed. Yeah, you know, he he was in the the thirties uh, a couple months ago. I'm curious to see exactly how much it climbs. But yeah, I agree. He's definitely a guy I want shares of. In the backfield, J.K. Dobbins is the guy I'm targeting right now. In early in early July drafts, Dobbins is going running back 30, 31, Mark Ingram at, at running back 27. Again, I, I'm, I'm betting on Dobbins outscoring him this season, so I think he's clearly the better value there. But again, at those prices, you know, they're both going in RB3 range. You can definitely take both of them. Who I don't like, there's really no strong dislike here. Mm-hmm. I'm not, like I said, I'm not usually taking Lamar Jackson at cost, but I can't strongly argue against where he's going. And, and similarly, Mark Ingram, haven't been interested because I think J.K. Dobbins is a better bet to outscore him this year. But at RB27, I can't argue with taking him. Yeah, I've actually taken Lamar Jackson a couple times now. His best ball 10 ADP is sitting at 26th overall. So, you know, early third round. That's that's a bit early for me, but I've seen him get into the back half of the third round. I've even seen him get into the fourth round. I think he's definitely worth a look there, especially when you look at some of the other guys going that range. I mean, all the running backs have lots of question marks. The wide receivers are fine, but a lot of the wide receivers I like there, I can usually get in the fourth and even fifth round. So um, I think in the back half of round three, Lamar Jackson starts to make sense. Yeah. And I think that uh, another mark in favor where you can kind of make up for drafting the quarterback early is if you do get him, because you're never going to want to sit a starting Lamar Jackson, just wait and wait and wait and wait for your quarterback. And if it's a a lineup setting league, don't ever take a second quarterback. And then when other teams are drafting two of them in, you know, the the range of round nine to round 13, you can take whatever wide receivers are lingering on the board in that range. Yeah. And even in basketball, you know, I, I, generally like taking three quarterbacks but if I get Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes I'm just taking one more behind him so that you know frees up another spot to use in another position on to the Bengals where there were no coaching changes as well just like the Ravens the Bengals returned the same head coach same offensive coordinator same defensive coordinator from last year Zach Taylor comes off a 2-14 and record in his first turn as a head coach at any level Uh, As far as coordinating, he spent part of 2015 as a Dolphins coordinator. He spent 2016 as the OC and QBs coach at the University of Cincinnati. That's it for his experience as a coordinator. He's had five other seasons as an NFL position coach, just turned 37 in May. OC Brian Callahan is really at a similar level on both age and experience, turned 36 in June. He heads into year two of his first coordinator job at any level. He had three prior years as a QB's coach in Detroit, then Oakland, five years on Denver's offensive staff, and those two combined to produce a stinky Bengals offense Mm -hmm. in 2019. 30th in scoring, 26th in yards, 28th in yards per play, 29th in football outsiders DVOA, 
It was the team's worst ranking in points since 2008, and that was a team that lost Carson Palmer after four games and watched Chad Johnson miss three-plus games. The Bengals played at a nice pace. They were ninth in situation-neutral play pace, according to Football Outsiders, but that's not really a change from where they were before Zach Taylor arrived. They were 12th in that category in 2018. They were 4th in 2017, 7th in 2016. So they were moving the ball before the new coaching staff arrived. Yeah, it was definitely ugly last year in Cincinnati. I still have some optimism for this staff. I mean, it was a tough spot for, you know, two younger, inexperienced coaches. They lost A.J. Green for the entire season. Obviously, the O-line was a complete mess. You know, they lost their first-round pick, Jonah Williams, for the entire season. Uh, the Bengals finished 26th in PFF's pass-blocking grades, 31st in run-blocking. So it would have taken a, a minor miracle for, for, you know, this Bengals offense to be above average last season. I do like the fact that they, you know, ranked pretty highly in, in play and situation neutral pace I think that that's just going to help if we think this offense is going to rebound in 2020 under Joe Burrow and getting AJ Green back I think that pace will just sort of help boost everyone's fantasy numbers on the run pass split front they finished fifth most pass heavy in the league last year that's not surprising given the two and 14 record 63.3 percent pass were the Bengals it was the most pass heavy Bengals team ever as far as I can tell unless there was some team from like the 60s that went more pass heavy than that I didn't keep going back through the entire history because I got into the 70s and it was still the most pass-heavy team. It's the second straight year that the Bengals have been over 60%. That has been rare for a Bengals team historically. 10 NFL teams that Brian Callahan has been a part of so far, their median passing lean was 60.6%. Zach Taylor's seven NFL seasons, both of these including last year, his median has been 61.6% pass. So I think we should expect the passing lean to stay in that range this year. The Bengals did shift a little bit on that front last year. Over the first eight weeks, they were 71% pass. And after the bye, they were just 56% pass. The after the bye portion did include both of the team's wins, but we're still talking about a two and six team. So it's not like they were protecting a lot of leads at that point. That was a funky second half of the season for the Bengals. It was like they were just trying to run up clock and, and, and get out of there every week. I do expect this to remain a pass-leaning offense. It's probably going to pass a, a bit less, though. Um, I think the Bengals will be a little bit better, win a few more games this season. Um, they do have a rookie quarterback as good as we think Joe Burrow is. I think you know they might want to lean on the running game a little bit more. Yeah, I projected them at a 60-40 pass-run split. I wouldn't be surprised if it's heavier toward the pass than that, but I think that's a, a solid place to start given the rookie quarterback. Yeah, I went 61-39 in favor of pass. I have still have my doubts about the coaching staff because I haven't seen anything that makes me want to believe in them at this point. But what I like about this team is the skill position talent. It starts with Joe Burrow. Hit us with some Joe Burrow stuff in the QB notes. Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue pretty well that Joe Burrow's 2019 was the best season we've ever seen from a college quarterback. 5,671 yards, 60 touchdowns versus just six interceptions, 76% completion rate, 10.8 yards per attempt. Burrow received the highest passing grade from pro football focus since the site started grading college players back in 2014. Uh, if you want to knock Burrow, you could point to the fact that 2019 was really his only big college season. He started his college career at Ohio State, backed up JT Barrett for his second two seasons on campus after redshirting as a freshman. And then his first year at LSU after transferring wasn't very good. Um, under 3,000 passing yards, just 16 touchdowns, 58% completion rate. But I, you watch the tape and it's tough not to love Joe Burrow. He just, he, he looks the part. He also has sneaky rushing upside, 767 rushing yards and 12 touchdowns over the past two seasons at LSU. So I think, you know, that that's going to buoy his fantasy value as a pro. 
Yeah, and I think that's what makes him most interesting right away. I mean, the, the passing numbers that we all know about, but when you add in the rushing, that makes it easier for a rookie to deliver fantasy production right away. Plus, as I mentioned, the skill position talent around him is a yeah. lot better than you would expect from a 2-14 and 14 team. A.J. Green is back, as far as we know, to health uh, on a franchise tag deal. We've got Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon, John Ross, who even if he continues to be a bust, even if he ultimately busts at his first round, price tag. He's fast. So he offers that to you. And then T Higgins arrived early in round two. throw on top of that, that Joe Burrow is only QB 20 in July ADP. And you just don't have to invest much to take a shot on the upside. Yeah. I mean, to me, Burrow, I, I think he's, you know, it sounds funny to say, but I think he's better than like your average number and overall pick. I think he's probably more NFL ready as an older prospect. And he's definitely joining a better group of skill position guys than the majority of number one overall picks play with as rookies. My biggest concern for Burrow is the offensive line. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot different heading into 2020 other than getting Jonah Williams back, who again was the 11th overall pick of last year's draft. If, if he can at least solidify one of the tackle spots, that'll help. But you know, it still looks like a, a below average offensive line, which which could give Burrow some some issues. Please just don't turn him into David Carr, Bengals. Please. <laughs> Running back notes: Joe Mixon, his rushing work climbed last season. His receiving did not. He drew 67.3 percent of team carries before the Week Nine buy. That climbed to 75.3 percent after. After. And as I mentioned before, the team just started running the ball more, so he saw more total volume. Target share dipped slightly from 7.4% before the buy to 7.2% after. You know, basically the same, but it's kind of odd that his target share did not rise at all when his carry share did. And it really especially doesn't make sense to me for Mixon, who, when he was coming into the league, looked like he would quickly be one of the NFL's best receiving running backs. I wonder, though, if I'm just wrong about that, because we've now seen three seasons of Mixon through two coaching staffs, and he has finished each of those years just fifth on his own team in targets. Yeah, it's it's strange. I think he should get more work in the passing game. He's been pretty good when he has gotten more work in the passing game. But at this point, we can't be sure he's going to get it. The good news with Nixon is I you know, I think he is one of the most talented runners in the NFL. I mean, he, he was running behind a bad O-line last year. Again, PFF ranked the Bengals 31st in pass blocking. They were 26th in football outsiders adjusted line yards, but Mixon still had a productive year on the ground. He finished 13th in PFF's elusive rating among 45 running backs with 100 plus attempts. Yeah, you know, I think the offense is going to be better this year with Burrow and hopefully AJ Green healthy. Um, again, the O-line gets Jonah Williams back. Maybe they take a bit of a step forward. So I think rushing production wise, Mixon should be near the top of the league this season. Whether he can, you know, be a truly elite fantasy option is going to come down to whether he he gets a bit bigger piece of the pie in the passing game. Yeah, and also how successful the offense is overall. The mark beyond the talent in Mixon's favor is that he looks like a good bet to dominate the rushing work at least and still lead the receiving work. Gio Bernard saw his carry share cut in half after the bye last season. His target share also saw a slight dip, so Mixon wasn't losing any targets to Gio Bernard. He just, you know, didn't grow that area of his game. Gio Bernard's cuttable after this season. There's competition from Travion Williams, maybe from Rodney Anderson, maybe from Samaje Pirine, who they signed. I'm not interested in Gio Bernard or anybody else in fantasy at this point. Nope, me either. Pass catcher notes, AJ Green, as you mentioned, should be back healthy. In his eight full games in 2018, he put up a top nine fantasy scoring average. 2011, when he was a rookie, is the last time that A.J. Green did not score at a top 12 fantasy wideout level. 
Yeah, I mean, just, just one of the bigger question marks in fantasy football, I think, is A.J. Green. We just haven't seen much of him. Like you said, he missed missed the seven games in 2018 with right big toe injuries, missed the entire 2019 season with that ankle injury he suffered in, like, late July. It was early in training camp. He went down. He, he never played. Um, he turns 32 later this month. So, you know, he, he's definitely past his peak. But as you said, you know, he, he's been a strong fantasy producer when we've seen him on the field pretty much his entire career, including in 2018 when he played half the season and, and, you know, was, like you said, basically a wide receiver one in terms of points per game. So we'll talk about him more, I guess, in the final section here. But um, he, he's he's cheap enough where I think gambling on A.J. Green can definitely make sense. Yeah, I think probably the toughest thing about drafting him right now is you might have to do it ahead of Marquise Brown because they're going in the same range. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Tyler Boyd, seventh in the league in targets last year, tied for 11th in reception. The target share is bound to come down some with a healthy A.J. Green this year if we do get a healthy A.J. Green this year. But as we mentioned before, back in 2018, Tyler Boyd's share was actually larger in games that Green played than it was in games that Green missed. And I think having A.J. Green around to draw defensive attention can only help Tyler Boyd find space. The issue beyond that is more competition in general. If John Ross also stays healthy, if T Higgins becomes a factor right away. And also if the team just throws the ball a little bit less than it was early last season and the year before. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about Boyd though, is he, he can come down from his production in the past two seasons and still be a big value where he's going in drafts. You know, Boyd finished 15th and 17th among wide receivers in PPR points the past two seasons. Um, and yeah, he, he's going to have a bit more target competition with T Higgins arriving, but I think, you know, Boyd's role in the slot is safe. So I don't expect too big of a dip in target share. Also worth noting, I don't know how much it means looking ahead, but Joe Burrow did just feed Justin Jefferson 111 catches as LSU's primary slot receiver last season. So, you know, Burrow's coming off a season where he was in sync with his slot guy, and that's going to be Boyd with the Bengals this year. Yeah, and even if we can't necessarily read a direct correlation between slot guy in college and slot guy here, it should be an overall QB upgrade from Andy Dalton to Joe Burrow. So that should help things. John Ross, I think he's a solid late shot in the best ball draft. He seemed like he was starting out last season on a path to a potential breakout. I'm not sure that that path exists now. If A.J. Green does emerge healthy, if T. Higgins proves ready to contribute something, the Bengals declined John Ross's option for 2021 this offseason, and it was the previous coaching staff that was in charge when the team drafted John Ross. I think there's a chance T Higgins overtakes John Ross to be the third wide out this year. So, mm-hmm. you know, a solid late best ball shot, but once we shift over to lineup setting, I can't say that I'm interested in John Ross. Yeah, I'm with you there. I still think there, there's a, a chance John Ross is good. We just haven't seen him on the field long enough to know. I mean, he only played eight games again last year. He, he did have two big games to open the season, seven catches, 158 yards, two touchdowns in week one, four for 112 and a score in week two. Finished the season with 9.0 yards per target. That's that's a, a nice number. Um, he was 23rd in yards per route run among 79 qualifying wide receivers. So again, I still think he he's good, but we just haven't seen it long enough because of the injury. And now T Higgins, you know, the Bengals spent the 33rd overall pick of the draft on him. So I think there's a pretty good chance Higgins ends up beating out Ross this season. But yeah, I'm with you. I think these guys would need an AJ Green injury to have a chance to be like fantasy factors in lineup setting leagues. I will say, I think John Ross is worth hanging on to in a dynasty roster and potentially even acquiring because you can probably do it for next to nothing at this point. He is young. He was a top 10 pick. Even if he doesn't have any future with the Bengals, there's plenty of time for him to maybe at least take a Brashad Perriman turn. <laughs> yeah, definitely. T. Higgins, I mean, you mentioned, we mentioned, I like the long-term upside. 
I'm not interested in him for 2020 personally. Yeah, I almost hope he has a quiet season so I can acquire him in some more dynasty drafts because I actually haven't gotten him in any so far, and he is one of my favorite wide receiver prospects in this class. CJ Uzama, this will be his first Tyler Eifert free season. Eifert did barely play in 2018, and Uzama finished that season 16th among tight ends and targets, 18th in PPR points. Eifert then returned to play every game last season, and Uzama sunk to, I believe, 7th on the team in targets, ranked 40th among tight ends in PPR points. So getting Tyler Eifert out of the way certainly helps him. The remaining hurdle at his position is Drew Sample, who the Bengals drafted in round two last year, and then Sample barely played as a rookie because of injury. Yeah, and Sample caught just 46 balls across four college seasons, so I'm I'm not sure how much of a pass-catching prospect he is. We'll have to see. There's nothing exciting about C.J. Uzoma besides the fact that, you know, he has a a good chance, I think, to be the lead pass-catching tight end on what might, you know, be a pretty solid passing game now with Joe Burrow in Cincinnati. And Uzoma is going 34th among tight ends. So even in these FFPC drafts, you know, he's available near the very tail end of drafts. And again, he he could be a starting tight end. So that that alone makes him... uh, someone worth considering. Yeah, and he is a, an above-average athlete for the position. He did just turn 27 in January. Plus, his name is fun to say. So <laughs> even outside of FFPC, I think he makes for a solid tight end three at the end of best ball 10 drafts. You know, yeah. even if we just get like a four-touchdown season from him, that works in that range. Yep, for sure. Who do you like on this team, Jared? Man, it sounds scary to say, but I kind of like everyone. Like, Bengals are cheap in drafts. Besides Joe Mixon, you know, he's at RB7, which is pretty much where he belongs. So I think, you know, if you're sitting in the back half of round one, he's definitely a target. But Joe Burrow, you know, at quarterback 20, we talked about the weapons, his rushing upside. I think he makes sense there. But especially these wide receivers, Tyler Boyd at wide receiver 30, he's like the, the, the safer pick. Again, he's finished top 17 each of the past two seasons, even if he tails off a little bit in terms of volume. Um, I think he's going to return value at wide receiver 30. AJ Green at wide receiver 31. You know, he he's the the boom bus play. Um, you know, we don't know if he can stay healthy, what's left in his tank at this point. But again, you know, he's he's pretty much been a perennial wide receiver one in terms of fantasy points per game throughout his career. And if you can get him, you know, at wide receiver 31, there's a chance he returns a, a, a huge profit. Yeah, the prices on both of those wideouts and the QB 2080p on Burrow not only make all of them solid options on their own but it makes them easy to stack and mm-hmm. i think that's worth going after in best ball as well as lineup setting leagues because i think if either of these wideouts does really pay off at his price tag probably going to bring joe burrow with them at the very least for some boom weeks even if he doesn't turn into a top 12 overall fantasy quarterback yeah, I mean, that, that might be my favorite stack in basketball drafts right now with the upside you get with those guys at those prices. Who I don't, I, I don't really think there's anyone expensive enough to truly dislike here. I'm a little bit uneasy with Joe Mixon mm-hmm. in like the range of the one-two turn. I definitely think he could pay off. I also worry that they don't throw him the ball more and that the Bengals disappoint offensively. So that makes me fall short of being confident in Joe Mixon in that range. Yeah, I'm with you. I think he's fairly priced. He's a guy I've 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 drafted plenty of, but yeah, there there are definitely concerns. It's it's you know more than anything else a bet on talent. Again, I, I do think he is one of the most talented running backs in the NFL. Now let's move over to the Cleveland Browns and Jared. There are definitely some relevant coaching changes here. Yep, brand new staff here, which I think can only be considered good news after the disaster that was the 2019 Browns offense. Head coach Kevin Stefanski and offensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt. Neither of these guys have too long of a track record as offensive play callers. Stefanski 
spent the final three games of 2018 as the Vikings offensive coordinator. Then he was the Vikings OC for all of last season. The 2019 Vikings obviously were one of the run heavier offenses in the NFL. They finished third in run rate, fourth in total rushing attempts. They were 30th in past attempts. My question there is how much influence did Gary Kubiak have on that offense and the play calling? Um, you know, Kubiak, I think his official title was like offensive assistant or, or something like that last year. You know, he, he's a long tenured NFL coach. I, I just wonder how much influence he had over the run pass split. Van Pelt, this will be his second season as an offensive coordinator. His only previous experience came with the Bills back in 2009. That Bills team finished bottom five in both total yards and points, so not super promising there. That Bills team was also run-leaning. They were 46.5% run that year. They ranked 21st in rush attempts, but 31st in pass attempts. Both these coaches seem like they want to run the ball, um, but I think we don't know for sure just because, you know, again, we're only dealing with two full seasons of these guys as play callers. The whole Kevin Stefanski rise makes me a little bit uneasy that he was mm-hmm. already considered a candidate last year before he even had the full season as OC for Minnesota. And like you said, he's working with Gary Kubiak and under Mike Zimmer. And Mike Zimmer is a defensive guy, but he's also a veteran coach. So I don't know. You have to wonder after they made the switch the previous season because John Filippo was not running the ball enough. You have to wonder how much of the directive was from Mike Zimmer. I, I love the talent in Cleveland. I think there's a chance that Kevin Stefanski just, you know, proves to be the wonderkin that they think he is. But I, I'm a little bit uneasy about his rise. Yeah, I think there's at least more unknown with this staff than it seems like a lot of fantasy drafters are sort of baking into the ADPs on these guys. Yeah, I think it's worth noting, too, on the run-pass split front in Minnesota, the Vikings went 10-6, and six, so they were a winning team. They ran the ball 55.1% of the time in their 10 wins. They ran just 35.7% of the time in their six losses. So wide swings when they were trailing versus when they were leading, even you know among those sets of data. like Most teams would not run quite that much when they're winning and would run a little bit more than that when they're losing. So we'll see how this Cleveland team does as far as success goes and how that might swing the run-pass split. QB notes, Baker Mayfield... We were all a little bit excited for Baker Mayfield last season, and it couldn't really have gone much worse for him than it did. Yeah, finished quarterback 19 in fantasy points. He had just five top 12 weeks last year. 16 quarterbacks had more than that. Among 27 quarterbacks with 300-plus pass attempts last year, Baker Mayfield ranked 26th among those 27 in completion rate. He was dead last in adjusted completion rate. He was uh, 14th in yards per attempt, 17th in PFF's passing grades. All those marks well down from his 2018 rookie season. I'm still willing to call last year the outlier. I mean, again, Baker had a strong rookie season. He had three huge seasons at Oklahoma. So last year looks like the outlier. We'll see what the new coaching staff means. Again, I think it can only help because last year's staff seemed completely lost. The offensive line should be better in front of Baker Mayfield this season. The Browns added right tackle Jack Conklin in free agency. They drafted left tackle Jedrick Wills in the first round of the NFL draft. So that should help. The the concern, though, again, goes back to this coaching staff. And if they want to be so run heavy, Baker might struggle for the volume he needs to, you know, bounce back into quarterback one territory. Kirk Cousins was obviously the starter in Minnesota last year was super efficient, ranked near the top of the league in completion rate, yards per attempt, but he still ranks just 18th among quarterbacks in fantasy points because he finished 24th in pass attempts. We could see a a similar story with Baker this year. It's not hard to explain away Mayfield's 
down year two based on the coaching staff that <laughs> left town pretty quickly. But I mean, last year it was Freddie Kitchens being shoved into a head coaching role after part of a season as offensive coordinator that looked positive, and he clearly ended up being over his head in that job. I hope that that's not the case with, with Kevin Stefanski, and I would hope that the Browns would kind of learn from that mistake and, and maybe you know see whatever they saw in Kevin Stefanski in the interview process and just get the right guy this time to try to support Baker Mayfield, because I agree, we're still talking about a good quarterback, and we're certainly talking about a quarterback with good position talent around him. We'll talk about the pass catchers in a minute, but first... The running back notes, and you know, we've talked Nick Chubb before. I think it was back on the Projections Party podcast. He's really good. No running back last year produced more games of 90-plus rushing yards than Chubb did in spite of their O-line issues. He had nine such games. No other running back had more than seven games of 90-plus rushing yards last year. Kareem Hunt did cut into his work. Chubb's target share especially fell from 11.7% in games without Kareem Hunt to 6.4% with Kareem Hunt. His rushing share went from 82.4% without Hunt to about 70% with Hunt in there. That's a significant dip, but also 70% is still near the top of the league in terms of rushing share. Chubb still averaged 18 carries per game over the second half of the season with Kareem Hunt. If he, if he does that again this year, he's going to you know finish at or near the top of the league in total carries. The concern is that Chubb saw just 2.1 targets per game with Hunt versus four targets per game without Hunt over the first half of the season. So so Nick Chubb was RB5 in PPR points over the first half of the year without Hunt. He dropped to RB14 with Hunt over the final eight games of the season. I, I think the, the new coaching staff, though, adds a lot of unknown here. I mean, we, we don't know that Stefanski and Van Pelt are going to use these running backs the same way. There's a chance that the new staff gives Hunt more carries you know, in, in, in place of Chubb. There's also a chance the new staff uses Chubb more in the passing game instead of Hunt than the old staff did. So I think that adds some unknown. Like you said, though, Nick Chubb, an awesome runner. We've seen that now through two NFL seasons. Um, so I think he has at least that going for him, that the volume is a bit more of a question mark. Yeah, we like to go with what we know as much as possible. There's obviously always a lot of things that we don't know when we're projecting this stuff. More unknown here than in other cases. So I think you just have to kind of bet on the talent. I'm a little bit scared of Nick Chubb because of the unknowns here that we've already mentioned. I'm also scared to be out on Nick Chubb <laughs> because of the talent. Because if he does get 300 carries, I mean, he could have, as I've said before, he could have Derrick Henry's season this year, especially right. if the offense is significantly better. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the O-line should be a lot better in front of him too. So he's definitely a scary guy to be completely out on. wish he was going a bit later, but I've seen him get into the second round of drafts plenty. And I, I think, you know, that's, that's where he makes sense. Yeah, if you can get Nick Chubb in round two, I feel certainly a lot better than taking him at the end of round one for yep. whatever reason. I'm not like it makes <laughs> right. a huge difference. And you're talking about the same pool of players at each spot. It really seems more like a, a placebo kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you're probably right. Kareem Hunt averaged just 5.4 carries per game. After his eight-game suspension last year, you know, as you mentioned, we'll see what that means under the new staff. It certainly sounds from what Kevin Stefanski has said so far like he loves Nick Chubb's rushing. And I think we'll still get Nick Chubb as the clear rushing leader, but it's definitely going to be a situation that we have to watch throughout the summer. And there was that story like a month ago where um, Kareem Hunt has, has been learning some of the wide receiver stuff in the Browns' new offense. Um We'll, we'll see about that. That that tends to be more of like a, a spring storyline. Never really comes to fruition once the games get underway. But Hunt did average 5.5 targets per game in his eight games with the Browns last year. Again, that was you know more than double what Nick Chubb saw, and that propelled Hunt to a running back 16 finish over those final eight games. Cream Hunt scored just 2.4 
fewer PPR points than Nick Chubb did over the second half of last season. Again, because of that massive role in the passing game. And, you know, Kareem Hunt, we talked about Nick Chubb being good. Kareem Hunt is really good, too. He finished fourth in PFF's elusive rating as a rookie in 2017. He was third in elusive rating in 2018. And then over the final eight weeks of last season, Kareem Hunt was second in elusive rating among 47 qualifying running backs over that span. Nick Chubb was sixth. So, you know, we're talking about two super talented backs here. Exactly how the work is going to be divvied between them. You know, that's what we're going to have to hopefully find out in August. Like both players, it's kind of scary to be out on either player. So I like to get some of them in various spots going into the season. I think it's okay to add Kareem Hunt to a Nick Chubb team, even with how early he's going and even when we talk about lineup setting rosters. I think it still makes sense to carry both of them. Yeah, me too. On to the pass catcher notes. Uh, let's start with Jarvis Landry. It seems like there's always a reason to doubt Jarvis Landry <laughs> and then he just keeps producing. This year, though, it's the hip injury that makes me more concerned than usual and less likely to try to talk myself out of you know my pessimism for him because the it seems like the expectation is that it's going to at least limit him into August. And you know we're kind of waiting to see at this point exactly what proves to be true on that front. In his first season with Odell Beckham on the team, Landry beat Beckham by five targets. He rebounded from a terrible catch rate with Baker Mayfield in their first year together. So he gave us reasons to believe in him. Now we just have to see if that hip is good. Yeah, the the hip is the only concern for me. This guy's been a, a value for a long time. Five straight top 19 PPR finishes for Jarvis Landry. Um, I'm pretty sure he's never been drafted in the top 19. I, I could be wrong about that, but you know he's going wide receiver 32 in drafts right now. Landry was better than Odell Beckham last year, basically by any metric. Uh, more targets, more catches, more yards, more touchdowns, beat him in yards per target, beat him in yards per route run. And we, we'll talk about OBJs. You know, I don't think he was healthy for most, mm-hmm. if not all, of last season. But you know, the, the point is Jarvis Landry continues to be an underrated wide receiver. If the hip checks out, I think he's a big value in drafts right now. Yeah, his 25.6% target share last year ranked third among all wideouts in the league, even with Odell Beckham around. Beckham's first Cleveland season featured career lows for him in receptions per game, yards per game, catch rate, and touchdown rate. As you mentioned, though, injury played a part in that. Beckham averaged 12.7 PPR points per game last year. He had never fallen below 18.3 in any of his previous seasons with the Giants. So again, I'm sort of like with Baker, I'm sort of writing off 2019 as an outlier season for OBJ. There, there were definitely plenty of reasons for his poor season. You know, obviously working with a new quarterback in a new offense and, you know, what was a dysfunctional offense for, for most, if not all of the season. He also played the entire season last year with a core muscle injury that that he suffered in the summer uh, required January surgery. So I don't think he was ever at 100% last season. The good news, he's back to 100% now, still just 27 years old. And I I still think the guy is a stud. I mean, he he had the third most receiving yards per game in NFL history through his first five NFL seasons behind only Lance Allworth and Julio Jones. So again, last year, it looks like the outlier. Beckham's still a guy I want to bet on going forward. Yeah, he said in a May YouTube video that the surgery was, quote, probably one of the worst surgeries I've ever had for whatever that's worth. I I can't help but worry a little bit about a guy at his age who can already talk about all of the surgeries (laughs) he's ever had and kind of rank them in order from worst to first. But if he is fully healthy, you know, along the lines of what we said with Jarvis Landry, I would certainly rather bet on a bounce back than continue disappointment from Beckham. 
the, I guess, relative problem is that people in general are betting on him. He's the wide receiver 11 in best ball 10s ADP for July going in the middle of round three. I think if we do get a fully healthy, fully functional Odell Beckham, obviously he's shown us that he has a ceiling well above that point still. He definitely has a ceiling above that. Um, he, he he sits lower than wide receiver 11 in our rankings, though. And again, that, that goes back to the volume concerns. You know, if we think this is going to be a run-heavy offense and Jarvis Landry's still here and they added Austin Hooper, who we'll talk about, Beckham might struggle to get the type of volume he, he would need to, you know, be a top 12 fantasy wide receiver. I agree. And certainly sharing with Jarvis Landry only further dings the, the potential consistency for his scoring. Austin Hooper spent the early part of his career in the right place for fantasy production in Atlanta. He finished the past two seasons, second and first in the league in passing share. So he leaves many targets behind there. He comes to Cleveland. I don't think there's going to be nearly as many targets available for him here. And he's been not that efficient, 10 and a half yards per catch career. So target volume has been key in driving his fantasy value. Yeah, a good tight end, but not the type of tight end who's going to, you know, vastly outproduce the volume he sees. So that's definitely a concern. Uh, if, if there's a positive set, Kevin Stefanski's offense in Minnesota last year was tight end centric. The, the Vikings had two tight ends, two plus tight ends on the field for 54% of their offensive snaps last season. That was the highest rate in the league. Um, 22.5% of Vikings targets went to tight ends last season. That was a bit above the league average of 21%. So that's the good news. But again, the passing volume is likely coming down from what Hooper played with in Atlanta the past uh, few seasons. And, and, you know, the target competition in Cleveland is is just as stiff. You know, he, he was battling with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley in Atlanta. But, you know, Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry is, is just as strong a wide receiver do. The good news for Austin Hooper fantasy-wise is that I think more drafters are becoming aware that he's not in nearly as good a spot now and that he hasn't been an efficient fantasy producer. He's down to 11th among tight ends in ADP and best ball 10 drafts for July. He had been regularly tight end six back early in draft season. So I think if you're pushing him down to the bottom of tight end one territory, that's a fine range. I I still think you're going to need Cleveland to be at least a decent to good offense to support Austin Hooper as a tight, as a number one tight end. Yeah, his price is getting more fair, but it's still not at a at a level where I've really considered drafting him a, a single time this this spring. David Njoku's trying to remove himself from the competition has mm-hmm. requested a trade from the team. Be curious to see if that gets honored. Uh, the team also drafted Harrison Bryant in round four as another pass catching tight end. I'll say if Njoku gets dealt, I'll feel a bit safer about Austin Hooper. I mean, I you know Njoku has his. 2019 was a completely lost season. Um, he's, you know, working with an, a new coaching staff now that the Browns signed Austin Hooper to this big contract. So I definitely expect Hooper to be the lead tight end, but I, I think Njoku's talented enough to steal some targets away from Hooper. Uh, again, the Vikings had two tight ends on the field over half of their snaps last season. So if Njoku's on, on the field alongside Hooper, I think he's good enough to steal some targets. If Njoku leaves, um, you know, I, I think, again, that would, that would bump Hooper up my rankings at least a few spots. Yeah, I think that if we do get an Njoku trade, Austin Hooper probably moves a couple spots at least up the Draft Sharks rankings because I agree with that. Who I like in Cleveland, there's no one that I I really like well enough to chase. I do want to start the year with some Nick Chubb and some Odell Beckham. Neither is They're both going at an early enough point, though, that I can't just chase them outright and say that they got to be on my team. Yeah, I'm sort of busy with those guys. I'm honestly not sure I've drafted either of them a single time, which I probably need to fix because, again, those are guys I want to bet on just based on talent. The, the two guys I have drafted on the Browns, Jarvis Landry, again, you know, wide receiver 32, 
riskier than he has been the past few years because of that hip injury. But, you know, it sounds like there's a pretty good chance he's ready for week one. If he is, I think he's going to easily beat that price tag. And then Kareem Hunt at running back 29. You know, I, I, again, I love Nick Chubb, but I'd rather take a shot on Kareem Hunt at running back 29 in like the sixth round of a draft than Nick Chubb at running back eight. And no argument against Kareem Hunt where he's going for Jarvis Landry. I can't argue with his price. The issue for me with him is that he's going right in the same range with Tyler Boyd, mm-hmm. AJ Green, Will Fuller. Marquise Brown slightly ahead of him, Michael Gallup in the same range, T.Y. Hilton. So it's tough for me to reach for Jarvis Landry right now, and I'm still waiting to see on the hip when those other guys are, are healthier. Yeah, that's that's fair. I guess A.J. Green doesn't fit the healthier category. <laughs> on the who I don't front, it has been Austin Hooper. Like I said, now that his ADP is coming down some, I won't argue against him as much, but uh, he's still not a guy that I'm targeting, mostly because of Blake Jarwin. Yeah, I haven't drafted Hooper, and I don't believe I've drafted Baker Mayfield yet this year. Um, he's at quarterback 15, so you, you can't really knock that price. Um, there's just guys I like better. Again, I still believe in Baker, but I'm just I'm not sure he's going to get the volume he needs to you know really bounce back and, and provide a profit at that price tag. And that's just a crowded range where any of those guys can finish you know QB twenty or QB ten. Yep, exactly. On to the Pittsburgh Steelers to round out this division, and no coaching changes here. Mike Tomlin's been the head man since 2007. Randy Fickner enters his third season as the OC. The offense dropped from fourth in yards and sixth in points to t- in 2018 to 30th in yards, 27th in points last year. Antonio Brown got traded, of course, then imploded before last season. Ben Roethlisberger played just a game and a half before succumbing to a right elbow injury. James Conner missed six games and parts of others. Juju Smith-Schuster missed four games and played hurt in others. The backup QBs sucked. The offense basically had no chance in 2019 to be any good, and it really wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think you can completely throw out last year if you believe Ben Roethlisberger is going to be healthy. And we'll, we'll, we can talk about him and the issues you know, behind him on the depth chart. The, the upside for this offense, you just go back to 2018. You know, again, Fickner's first year as offensive coordinator. The Steelers that season, they ranked first in pass rate, first in pass attempts. They were also fifth in total plays. It was a really strong fantasy offense. So that's the upside again. The question, the big question with this entire offense is Big Ben's elbow. So looking back at the 2018 Steelers team, they, they finished marginally behind Green Bay in terms of pass heaviness. It was less than half a point uh, percentage point. Despite going 9-6-1, and one, they were 62.6% pass in their nine wins, 76.6% in their six losses. So it was a, a pass-leaning team that year in Randy Fickner's first turn as, as the OC. Last year's team had to run the ball more, as we mentioned, because the QBs were just so bad. The 2020 version, though, looks built to lean pass again, I think. They added only Anthony McFarland to a backfield that really proved shallow behind James Conner when he went down last year. I don't think anybody really showed out in his absence. They added Chase Claypool in round two to Juju Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, James Washington. They signed Eric Ebron. You know, Ben Roethlisberger, they say his elbow is on track, so I think barring some setback with Roethlisberger, it looks like a team that's probably going to throw the ball 60 plus percent of the time this year, no matter how successful they are. I looked back this morning at my projections from back in February or March, and I had them at a 58-42 pass run split. I think that's too run heavy. I think it should be. I think we should project them at plus 60%. And that probably contributed to me being a little bit light on Juju and Deontay Johnson initially. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. My initial projections had them at 61% pass, um, which I, I I still think is fair. I think if, if anything, it's on the low end if Ben is healthy. Yeah, I agree with, totally with that. 
QB notes, Ben Roethlisberger, as you mentioned, back in 2018, last time he was healthy, third among quarterbacks in fantasy points. We still have not seen him for a season without Antonio Brown, though. That's what we were waiting to see last year, and we didn't get it. And, and we need to see what he looks like following the elbow injury. So, I mean, is there upside to him? Yes, as far as we know from the last time we saw him. And at QB 17, the price is fine. I'm just I'm waiting to see on Roethlisberger rather than being all in on though. Lots of questions here. Um, I think the biggest is is that elbow. I mean, he had he had surgery last September to repair three tendons in that throwing elbow. Um, we do know he was throwing again by this this past May. All the reports on his rehab have been positive, but you know we're still talking about a 38 year old quarterback coming off you know significant surgery on his throwing elbow. Ben had already had a lengthy injury history before last year. He's played in all 16 games in just four of his 16 NFL seasons. So lots of question marks for Ben and you know, just for the entire offense, because if he goes down again, the Steelers did not add a single quarterback this offseason, which is just amazing to me, considering how bad Mason Rudolph and Duck Hodges were last season. So if, if Ben goes down again, you know this offense is kind of screwed, I think. I have to wonder if they ever talked to Cam Newton's representative to see if he would take that league minimum with the big incentives deal for them, because it would make, I think, even more sense in Pittsburgh than it would have made in New England. So I, I agree with you. I'm shocked that they didn't add anything because Mason Rudolph looked terrible. Devlin Hodges looked terrible. If Ben Roethlisberger goes down, the team's done again. Yeah, and again, that, that just adds risk to all these other skill position guys we'll talk about. Running back notes, James Conner has dealt with injuries last year more so than the year before. As I mentioned, he lost six games, uh, lost parts of others. But I'm a little bit less worried in the injuries that knocked him out last year versus the ankle the year before. Yeah, it was a pair of shoulder injuries last year. You, you heard it early and then re-aggravated it later on and had a quad injury. So yeah, I, I agree. I don't think any of his injuries like should be long-term concerns, but just now that it's been two seasons of him being banged up. I think you do have to worry about the durability a bit. Connor has also been awesome when he's been on the field though. He was uh, running back six in PPR points in 2018. That was in just 13 games. Um, he caught 55 passes that year. I, I had, I had almost forgotten that. So, you know, he, he showed high upside in the passing game was good on the ground ninth in PFF's elusive rating out of 47 running backs that year, even last year, you know, he finished PPR running back 18 in points per game. But if you just look through week eight before those injuries really started piling up, Connor was sitting eighth among running backs in PPR points. You know, he's a healthy Connor has been a top 10 fantasy running back the past two years now. Yeah, I mean, he was so good two years ago that we were drafting him in round one last year. Mm -hmm. That's where ADP was. And, And granted, the injuries made him disappoint at that range. But a healthy Connor is very good. And beyond that, nobody really stepped up. When he went down last year, as I mentioned, the six missed games, he missed large chunks of two other games. So there was opportunity for Jalen Samuels. He didn't capitalize. He had uh, he he had a couple of games of like starter level touches never delivered. Benny Snell was completely average. He ran for 98 yards against the Bengals in his first start. His only other start came in week 17. That was against the Ravens team that had already clinched. So that game didn't matter overall. He averaged 3.4 yards per rush in his other 11 contests. They added Anthony McFarland in round four. He's an exciting talent, but he was also never even a featured back at Maryland in his two seasons there. So to me, it's James Conner as not only the lead back, but the feature back again this year. 
And yeah, is there some durability risk? Sure. But there's durability risk everywhere at this position. Any of these guys can go down. So if I can get James Conner at a depressed price, I'm buying pretty comfortably. Yeah, I've, I've definitely come up on Connor. You know, early in the offseason, we, we were doing projections. I, I was concerned about Connor's injuries and his volume. I'm, I'm not concerned about the volume anymore if he's healthy. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think Benny Snell or Jalen Samuels are, are good running backs. I think McFarlane obviously completely unproven as a rookie. It was just a fourth round pick, you know, is 208 pounds. So he, he doesn't have feature back size, just 245 college carries for McFarland. So he's even more inexperienced than your average rookie. Um, and then you look at Mike Tomlin's history. He, I think, clearly favors a clear lead ball carrier. Um, he's had a running back top 240 carries in seven of his 13 seasons with the Steelers. Le'Veon Bell obviously did a few times. Rashard Mendenhall, top 240 carries. Uh, Willie Parker, top 240 carries. So I think he definitely leans that way. Tomlin said he leans that way earlier this offseason. He said, quote, I'm a featured runner type guy by mentality. Went on to call James Conner, quote, a featured guy and a proven runner when healthy. So that's no longer a concern for me. I think Conner is going to get the volume when he's healthy. It's just, can he stay healthy? But, you know, again, not, not when you can get him in the third or fourth round, you know, versus a first round pick last year. I think Conner makes a lot more sense in drafts now. And really, Jared, all he's done throughout quarantine is post these look how big my muscles are videos. So, I mean, it's really a lot easier to bet on his durability when he's out throwing logs over his head. Yeah, whatever it takes, James. <laughs> There's definite t- top eight upside to James Conner, I think, at the position in fantasy. Pass catcher notes, Juju Smith-Schuster started last season decently despite the injury, but of course it went quickly downhill from there. Roethlisberger went down, Juju Smith-Schuster went down. He ranks among the top 10 all-time in catches and yards through two NFL seasons. So if we throw out last year, I mean, he still looks like an exciting prospect. I just don't know exactly what to think of Juju heading into 2020. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think he's a really good wide receiver. I'm not sure he's as good as what he did those first two years. I, I think playing alongside Antonio Brown helped him a bit. I also think you know last year was closer to the outlier than than what we saw the first two seasons. Like you said, the quarterback issues in Pittsburgh, obviously, last year, the injuries for Juju. You know, he, he suffered a week one toe injury. Those can be tough for any player, especially wide receivers who need to push off and cut. Um, so Juju suffered the injury in week one, aggravated again in week four. You could probably say he was you know, never completely healthy last season, also suffered a knee injury and concussion in week 11. The lingering questions for me with Juju, the biggest one is, is Ben's health. Again, if, if Roethlisberger goes down again this season, the entire offense is going to crap the bet again. So that adds a lot of downside risk to Smith-Schuster. And then there's still you know Juju without Antonio Brown last year. Would have been his first season without Brown. Um, I don't think we can put too much stock into it just because the quarterback issues and the injuries, but we still don't know exactly how Juju is going to operate as Pittsburgh's lead wide receiver. Overall, he's a prospect that I'm willing to bet on a rebound from, but he's also going 13th among wide receivers. So the, the issue is similar to Odell Beckham in that you're going to have to pay if you're looking to bet on him rebounding. That's a little bit more than I've been willing to pay. Yeah, if the Steelers had signed Cam Newton, I'd, I'd be in on Juju at wide receiver 13. Because again, my concern is just, can Ben stay healthy? And then what that offense will, would look like if Ben goes down again. There are also a surprising number of Deontay Johnson fans. It started, <laughs> I want to say it started with a trickle, but it, I didn't, it didn't. There was maybe like a one or two day trickle. And all of a sudden everybody's like, yeah, I like Deontay Johnson too. And it's not just, you know, people grasping to one particular stat. There are smart people that I 
trust in fantasy projection jumping on the Deontay Johnson train and saying things like he could outscore Juju Smith-Schuster this year. So this is what he's done so far in ADP. Through April best ball 10s drafting, Deontay Johnson was wide receiver 43. In May, he was wide receiver 36. June, wide receiver 35. July, wide receiver 35 so far. He's going late in round seven. So that seems to be where he's going to settle. Maybe there's some summer excitement that could push him a little further than that. I don't think that's a crazy level to have Deontay Johnson at the bottom of wide receiver three territory in round seven, as long as he doesn't climb any higher. Yeah, I'm glad I got a few shares of him him early on when he was in the 40s, because wide receiver 35, not crazy, but not a spot where I'm generally going to be considering him. There's at least a few guys going later that I like better. Deontay Johnson's rookie season, definitely impressive. He led the Steelers with 92 targets. 59 catches, five receiving touchdowns, was second on the team with 680 receiving yards. Again, did it as a rookie with crappy quarterback play. He also played through a groin injury that required offseason surgery. So, you know, he, he was probably not 100% for most of the season. Again, I, I, I still think Juju is the top receiver here. I still have quarterback questions on this team. That's all enough for me to just be shying away from Deontay at this price tag that he's at now. Especially when we've got... Brandon Cook's coming off the board after him. We've got Jamison Crowder, mm-hmm. like a full round behind him. It's it's easier for me to just let somebody else take Deontay Johnson right now. Yeah, and on top of Juju, who, again, I still think is the top guy here, you know, James Washington is back for his third NFL season. Washington actually finished better than Deontay Johnson last year in both yards per target and yards per route run. And I know Deontay Johnson was a rookie, but it was also only James Washington's second NFL season. So I don't think there's a huge edge there. And the Steelers added Chase Claypool, who you know I, I didn't love as a wide receiver prospect. And I still think he'd be better as a big tight end. But again, the, the Steelers spent a second round pick on this guy. He does have the size. He does have the athleticism. I don't even think Deontay Johnson's a lock to finish second among Steelers wide receivers and targets this season. James Washington also dominated the group in target depth last year. He averaged 15.9 yards per target, according to uh, Pro Football Focus. That was more than six yards deeper downfield than both Juju and Deontay Johnson. Is that going to make him a more volatile receiver? Yes, because those are harder targets to connect. But it can also make him more efficient for the balls that he does catch. And now we get a quarterback who maybe has a shot of actually finding him with those deeper targets. So James Washington is the forgotten guy. I think at all of their relative prices, he interests me the most among Steelers wideouts right now. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I don't think I've drafted Washington much, if at all. I mean, I'm not super excited about him, but again, I, I just I think people are, are too sure that Deontay Johnson is going to be like the clear number two in Pittsburgh this season. There's a nice duo of receivers at tight end for the team. During a May radio interview, Mike Tomlin called Vance McDonald and Eric Ebron, quote, the type of duo that is capable of creating issues for people with their talent. So I think the thing working against both of those guys is them being referred to as a duo. The crowd here, there's Upside to either player, I'll take Ebron first among them. Yeah, I definitely prefer Ebron. You know, he's clearly going higher in drafts too. I've I've generally been avoiding these guys just because you know, again, like you said, they are both there. Vance McDonald was awful last year, seven point two yards per catch, dead last in yards per route run among forty two tight ends with thirty plus targets last year. I put a lot of that on the quarterback play. Though you know, Vance was good his first two years in Pittsburgh, twelve point five yards per catch, eight point three yards per target, which was you know way up from his 5.0 yards per target last year. He was PPR tight end 10 back in 2018. So I, I, I still think Vance McDonald is a capable pass catching tight end, um, which 
makes me hesitant to pull the trigger on Eric Ebron in drafts. Yeah, I'm not chasing either guy either. I agree with that. Ebron gets to the point where I'm considering him, but I can't take him if like Jay Sternberger is still available. Yep. And I've also found myself, you know, somebody will take him when I believe that I can wait and take a different third tight end late in those drafts. Yeah, I mean, I prefer Sternberger. I prefer Irv Smith. Um, I'd even rather take a shot on Chris Herndon right now than, than Eric Ebron. I would rather take Eric Ebron than Chris Herndon right now, but it's the same range where if somebody says that to me, I'm not like, no, you're an idiot. Eric Ebron's the guy to take. I'm like, whatever. I'll take one of those guys. <laughs> kind of the fact that I don't feel that strongly about any of them versus each other is why I don't care about reaching for him. Yep. Makes sense. Who do you like among Steelers? James Conner is the only guy I'm, I'm really targeting in drafts right now. Um, you know, he's at running back 19 in the early fourth round. You know, he, he's part of that group of running backs. We talked about just have, they all have question marks. They all have upside. You know, Todd Gurley, Melvin Gordon, David Johnson, Chris Carson. James Conner is right in that group, and he at, at this point m- might be my favorite in that group. Because again, I, I do think durability is the only real concern for James Conner. And running backs get hurt. I mean, all these running backs have durability concerns. Maybe Conner's is a bit higher, but I think you know, as we said, he has he has clear running back one upside because he's shown it the past two years. Yeah, I agree. He's my favorite in that range for just that reason, because you can look at Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson, Todd Gurley, and say for each of those guys, maybe he's not as good anymore as he used to be. The knock for James Conner is not that. It is maybe he'll get hurt. Well, you know what? That's the case with most running backs. So at the range where I'm taking James Conner, now that I don't have to do it in round one, I'm definitely in on James Conner at that level. Who I don't, kind of just meh on everybody else. There's no other Steeler that I really want to make sure that I get pieces of. Maybe I'll end up being wrong about Deontay Johnson. I'm not anti-Deontay Johnson like I was Mark Andrews at ADP this time last year. So, you know, maybe I'll end up being wrong on him, but I don't feel worried about being out on anybody else at their prices. Yeah, I'm just generally fading this passing game for now just because of my questions at quarterback. You know, if we get more good reports on Roethlisberger in August and you know we, we see some stuff in training camp and hopefully the preseason I'll definitely feel better but you know Big Ben at quarterback 17 no issue with you know anyone going that late but there are definitely quarterbacks I prefer guys I feel safer about Juju Smith-Schuster um, in the late third round that's a bit too high for me you know he's going ahead of uh, Adam Thielen Robert Woods I definitely prefer those guys and then Deontay Johnson as we said not crazy but you know he's he's a few spots higher than I feel comfortable drafting him right now. So in this division of pretty big names at quarterback, is our favorite value the rookie? Uh, Yeah, pretty easily. Seems like it. That's going to do it for this AFC North preview edition of the podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now to see exactly how we project all these players that we talked about here and catch up on the AFC East and NFC East preview episodes. Back from a simpler time before we knew that Deshaun Jackson was Mel Gibson. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShaufDS. That's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Shaufs saying thanks so much for swimming with us. 